Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. I hope everyone is as excited for this week's guest as I am. This guy is one of the biggest guests we've had on the show. We were honestly just excited to have a conversation with him. But before getting into that, Roach wants to announce the winners of last episode's free book giveaway. All right, so we had four winners for Dan Goldie's book, The Investment Answer. There were only 10 of you who actually entered the contest, so odds are if you enter, you have a pretty damn good chance of winning. Dan Goldie's book, The Investment Answer, was won by Patrick, Twitter handle ManPT, Valerie, who's pushing papers, Andy, Real 87 or Ethereal87, and Willie Huikas. Remember, this giveaway is something we're going to try to do more often in the future, but you have to make it to the end of the episode to see if we're going to do a contest for that week. We also wanted to remind everybody to check out our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can contact us, give us some feedback, let us know what you think, watch videos that we post, all types of cool stuff. The other great thing to do is utilize our Amazon widget. It's in the bottom left-hand corner. There's an Amazon symbol. You click it. It brings you right to Amazon. And anytime you are searching or want to make a purchase, just use this, and it will provide us with a little referral commission. No cost to you. You won't even notice. We really appreciate it. It helps keep the podcast running, and frankly, I'm getting sick of ramen noodles. So now I'd like to talk about this week's guest. This week, we interview Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos and author of the book, Delivering Happiness, A Path to Profits, Passion, and Purpose. All three of those things, I believe, we all search for, so it's definitely a great read, very insightful. I recommend it. I want to tell everyone a quick story about how we came to interview Tony and how I got an inside look as to what makes Zappos special. When John and I first had the idea to contact Tony, it was because we knew he was young, he'd been a very successful entrepreneur, And we wanted to learn more about starting a business, becoming successful, how he did it, things like that. First, I contacted his assistant, Liz, and instantly I got a really great vibe. It's hard to explain. We contact a lot of people for this podcast, and I I knew right away that this was a special company. She made me feel like my time was just as important as hers, and for that matter, just as important as Tony's, even though we both knew that wasn't true. When I mentioned the podcast and what we'd like to do, she just said, sure, Tony will do it. She didn't even check with him. This is a guy running a billion-dollar-plus company. She didn't even check with him. She said, he'll do it. He loves doing this stuff. We'll make time. Then her next question came, how many books would you guys like? That caught me even more off guard because, to be honest, I didn't even know Tony wrote a book. Again, we were calling him about his business sense. Also, we didn't even ask for a book. She just figured, you know, you guys might like this. So I said, yeah, sure, send us one. 
I'd later learn that this simple interaction I had with Liz was exactly what makes Zappos successful. It's their staff, it's their people, how nice they are, and how customer service oriented they are. So fast forward a little bit, the book arrives in the mail, I pick it up, and I kid you not, I read the entire 240 pages in one sitting. I was up till 2 a.m. The book honestly spoke to me. It was, you know, not everyone has the itch, but almost everyone has something they want to create, and this book gives you the guts to do it. You learn how a company is built from the ground up, from simply ideas and great people. You know, I could go on and on about Tony and Zappos, but it's easier for me to just say, listen to the interview, get a feeling for who he is, and definitely check out his book. I honestly think everyone can pull something away from it. I know, Roach, you had similar feelings. Yeah, sure. But I wanted to set one thing straight. For those of you that get books, if we you know, do a book contest for this interview, none of yours will actually speak like Chris's did. I don't know oh, how he on. got a talking book. But you didn't get that? You didn't no, get that edition? But I will have to agree with you. I got the book and started reading it. You know, three hours later, I was completely done. It was one of those feelings that I had. The only thing that I could relate it to was when I watched the movie The Social Network. Immediately after watching that movie, I was like, I need to do something that is creative, that matters. I need to just go out there and create something. And I thought the same thing when I read Tony's book because I saw what he went through, you know, how he quit his job. He just went out there and created something that he believed in pretty much twice and just was, you know, completely successful in both in both arenas. But I just wanted to put my, I guess you could say, stamp of approval on this book. So we're going to turn it over to the interview. But I want to give you a quick background of the company and Tony. At age 24, Tony sold the first company he created called Link Exchange to Microsoft for $265 million, 24 years old. And most of us might just call it a career after that. I know I would put on my golf shoes and have a great life. And that's the last thing he thought about doing. It was never about the money for him. It was literally about the passion of creating. He then went on to join Zappos, where he became CEO and helped grow the sales from $0 to over $1 billion in gross merchandise sales. And at the same time, he made Zappos one of Fortune magazine's best companies to work for. In November 2009, Zappos was acquired by Amazon in a deal valued at over $1.2 billion. Not too shabby. So now we're going to let you listen to our interview with Tony Shea. Your parents were pretty strict in regards to how they raised you. They stressed academic excellence, musical abilities, things like that. And this style of parenting I know is fairly normal amongst many Eastern cultures, but it's different from many American parents' idea of how to raise a child. What do you think is the best approach, and do you wish you had more leniency as a child, or are you glad you were pushed? I don't know if there's any one right answer to that. I think it really, you know, there's benefits to combining those approaches, but I would also say really a lot of it comes down to the individual personality of the kid and the parents and their interests. And so, for example, I have two younger brothers, and my response to my parents being strict was because my parents wanted me to go to college and become a doctor, eventually get a PhD and so on. And so for me, going the path of being an entrepreneur was kind of my way of rebelling against my parents. And so for me personally, I think if they weren't as strict and were more encouraging of going down the entrepreneur 
path. I, I think that would have been better for me, but not necessarily for my brothers or you know for for someone that has a different personality. And you know, there there's some people that really benefit from that exposure and parents being stricter and, and so on. And I think like any family, my parents actually became less strict with each child. So I was definitely the one that they were the most strict with. You also mentioned in your book something that I believe has crossed everyone's mind at some point. You said that early on you thought you would work hard when you were young so that later in life you could do what you wanted. However, oftentimes people say that you shouldn't put your dreams on hold because you may never get back around to them. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons I admire Fred in your book. I think that's exactly what he did. He had a lot of responsibilities, but he followed his dream and it ended up working out really great for him. Do you think that people should be willing to sacrifice following their dream or their passions early on to guarantee a paycheck and stability and things like that? Because obviously there is a lot to be said for making a good living and providing for your family. Well, A, I would say there are no guarantees. So a lot of times what you think is a guarantee could be a false sense of security. Uh, and then I would say the flip side, though, is that we live in an Asian society where the worst case scenario is actually not that bad. And I think there's a lot of assumptions that people have in terms of like, oh, if whatever doesn't work out, then there's no alternative solution when you know, the worst case scenario for probably anyone listening to this podcast is maybe you need to you know, suck up your pride and crash the friend for a while versus you know, 20,000 years ago, the worst case scenario was you would starve to death or be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Like you would actually die. Whereas the worst case scenario for most people listening to this is not you will die. Good point. I never really looked at the extremes like that. One thing that I think you and I have in common is that you talk about doing minimal work and getting maximum return. This goes back to the days when you tricked your parents into thinking you were practicing the piano. And then at college, you tended to pick classes based on having an easier workload. And even later, when you worked at Oracle, you tended to enjoy the lax schedule for a good pay. Where do you think this idea originates from and how do you feel about that? Because oftentimes I feel like people may misinterpret it as being lazy or unmotivated, but personally I think it's just working smarter and not harder. Well, for me, for the examples you came up with, actually I think it, it was for me being lazy and unmotivated. And, and probably that's the biggest thing is just feeling unmotivated. You know, if you're doing something that you're actually passionate about, then it doesn't seem like work and time just flies. And you know, that's one of the lessons that I learned is just follow your passion. I, I think as a society, we've kind of been accustomed to way of thinking like you know, back in the factory days when you just had to do however many hours of unrewarding work just to feed your family. And today there's so many opportunities that didn't exist even 10 years ago that definitely I think there's opportunity for people to be able to align what they actually do during the day with what they're actually passionate about. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about when you started Link Exchange. I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, you did quit that job at Oracle, you know, not really having a plan in mind, but just knowing that that wasn't what you wanted to do. What was your mindset when you had quit Oracle? And then when you eventually did start Link Exchange and you, you sold it to Microsoft for $265 million, how did that affect you at such a young age? I guess... For me, it kind of goes back to you know quitting Oracle, just realizing the worst case scenario is not that bad, and so many people 
put their lives on hold or, or never figure out what they actually want to do or what they're passionate about because they've been stuck in an unrewarding job for you know, 10, 20 years. And so you know, you're never going to get to wh wherever you're going to end up if you aren't moving along and, and being true to yourself. And, and I would say that's probably maybe the best guiding principle in general for, for life or, or in business is just be true to yourself. And anytime you realize you're not being true to yourself, you have the power to change that. In terms of being in Link Exchange selling to Microsoft, this was back in 1998. You know, so we got lucky with the timing. It was uh, during the dot-com boom. So definitely was in the position of not having to work again for the rest of my life. So I actually ended up spending about a year or so investing in different companies, and Zappos just happened to be one of them. But during that year, I realized that for me, investing was actually kind of boring. I felt like I was sitting on the sidelines and I really miss being part of building something. So uh, basically within a year, I ended up joining Zappos full-time. And you know, part of that process was also realizing that once you don't have to worry about, say, you know, paying rent or basic necessities like food, money doesn't necessarily buy incremental happiness, which I think most of society assumes is true. But there's actually been plenty of studies that show, you know, once you're above, for example, 75K roughly in annual income, that the additional income actually doesn't buy more happiness. I wanted to talk to you about what you mentioned in terms of how you were investing in companies before you came across Zappos. You were probably asked for funding by a lot of people when you were doing this. Can you tell us what you looked for in an investment and what do you think most venture capitalists look for? Is it a strong business plan, a great idea? I know passion is big with you. What do you think kind of sold you? At the time, we you know, we never really done. It was myself and Alfred, and we'd never really done any investing before, so not like we really knew what we were doing. Uh, we made about twenty or so different investments, but at the time, we were looking for what seemed like a good market opportunity, a team that worked well together, and I think a chance to be number one in whatever the company was in. All that being said, I, you know, we made I think the exact number was twenty-seven investments, and Ultimately, the vast, vast majority of our returns came from Zappos. So really, I guess specifically for Zappos, it was we really liked the people there and enjoyed working with them. I, I would also say that in general, you know, the value that VCs or investors in general were able to add when Zappos started back in 99 compared to today is very different. Uh, or even back in the Link Exchange days, you know, to keep our servers up and running and being able to handle all the volume, that was we looked into the cost and that was something like fifty thousand dollars a month for the equivalent bandwidth and service that you can get today for fifty dollars a month and so a lot of people go in with the assumption that they need to raise money and uh, i think it's a very different world today versus 10 or 15 years ago i know that in thinking about starting something i oftentimes worry about where the money is going to come from. And I was going to ask you, for someone with an idea, what do you think is the best way to go about raising money these days? Basically, how do you start from the beginning? For example, it seemed like Nick just called you out of the blue, fairly unprepared with just an idea that was Zappos. And I don't think many people would recommend this strategy. So I was kind of wondering what you would recommend. Well, I would actually recommend first figuring out if you actually need the money or not. Because I think a lot of times people assume they do and and I would actually say you don't. And one one of my favorite quotes is, I think it was from Jim Collins, was that it's never a question of not having enough resources. It's a question of not having enough resourcefulness. And 
it's actually when you don't have a lot of money or, or any money that you're forced to be creative and really figure out how to take your business to the next level and instead of relying on money. And there's lots of things you can do. There's other ways to have the equivalent effect of raising money. For example, if my brother is actually doing a startup right now and he was talking about how he needs money to pay his employees for payroll. And so you can either, in that scenario, either raise money and then use the money to pay your employees, or you can go direct to your employees and just say, if you're willing to work for a reduced salary or no salary, you'll get some of the equity in the company that would have otherwise gone to that initial investor. And other examples are for, you know, for Zappos in our early days. Initially, we thought we needed money in order to uh, grow our inventory. But rather than try to get a bigger loan or raise more money to grow that inventory, we found that actually some of that funding could effectively come from our vendors. Instead of paying them in 30 days, we partnered with them and paid some of them in 60 days or 90 days, which helped the cash flow of the situation and meant that we didn't need to raise more money or borrow more money. I wanted to go a little bit into the big thing behind Zappos is the culture and the, the customer service. You know, you made a statement of saying that the culture drives the brand. Can you explain that just a little bit? Sure. I, I mean, our belief is that a company's culture and a company's brand are really just two sides of the same coin, and the brand is really just a lagging indicator of the culture. You know, for example, if you ask random person off the street what they think of the airline industry as a whole, not any specific airline, you'll probably get back responses about bad customer service, apathetic employees, and so on. And like it or not, that is the brand of the industry, even though no airline set out for that to be their brand. And I think with you know, social networking, Facebook, Twitter, blogs, and so on, that actually that lag is becoming less and less because everyone's hyper-connected and information travels so quickly. So our number one priority as a company is our culture, and our belief is that if we get the culture right, then most of the other stuff like delivering great customer service or building a long-term enduring brand or business will just happen as a natural byproduct of that. Part of your training, you show your potential employees what the culture of Zappos is, and you guys have an interesting training program where you actually offer your new hire employees money to leave after going through training or any time during training. Do you still offer that? And what successes did you guys see out of that interesting take on you know a training program? Yeah, we've uh, been doing it for several years now. And basically, at the end of the first week of training, which is when they just start their job, we make an offer to the entire class. And it started out at $100, actually now at $4,000, where basically we say we'll pay you for the time you spend training plus a bonus of $4,000 to quit and leave the company right now. And that's a standing offer until the end of our four-week training program. And then we extended a few weeks beyond that afterwards. And Every year, we found that on average, about 2 or 3% of people end up taking the offer. And so that's actually why we keep upping the offer, because we feel like not enough people are taking it. And the reason we initially made that offer was because we didn't want employees that were here just for a paycheck. Uh, for a call center rep, starting pay is $11 an hour. There's plenty of other call centers in Las Vegas. And we're really just looking for employees that believe in our long-term vision and really feel like this is the right environment and culture for them. I know that when Zappos first started, Nick was just taking pictures of shoes and putting them on a website. 
And obviously this won't work unless people somehow visit the website. So I was wondering what methods did Zappos use to advertise both early on when no one knew about them and also later, even up to now, you guys are a nationally recognized company, how your marketing ideas and mediums changed. Yeah, I think we've, uh, you know, we, we advertise on keywords on Google. And so I'm sure we experimented with some of that during the early days, but uh, for the most part, our whole philosophy is let's take most of the money that we would have spent on paid advertising or paid marketing and rather spend it on that, invest into customer service and the customer experience, and then let our customers do the marketing for us through word of mouth. On any given day, about 75% of our orders are from repeat customers. And basically, the number one driver of our growth over the years from basically zero in 1999 to 2008 was when we first hit a billion dollars in gross merchandise sales. The number one driver of that growth has been through repeat customers and, and word of mouth. People are going to look at your story or your financial wherewithal and think you had it made. You sold a company early on in life and you could have taken it easy after that. I don't think until diving into your book, you realize that you did put it all on the line pretty much, which is scary, but is awesome in my mind. Do you ever look back and think you could have just hung out after you sold Link Exchange and probably avoided a lot of stress along the way, or would you have done the exact same thing? Probably would have done the exact same. I, I mean, it just goes back to just being true to yourself, and I think if I was just hanging out and not doing anything, I'd probably be pretty bored with, with life. And you know, the, the, the other thing is, like, if for whatever reason you know, Zappos hadn't worked out, then it's not really... At the, the end of everything, I guess in my mind, it's just worst case scenario, just you know, try to start another company. Because of how the economy is now and what's going on in big corporation and industries, it seems like a lot of people are trying to start their own startups or get into small businesses so that they can kind of control day-to-day -day work life. For these entrepreneurs that are out there, what would be your number one piece of advice? I would say start with... Uh you know, blank slate and start out with imagining like if money weren't an issue, uh, you know, what would you ideally like to do? Or if you won the lottery or didn't have to work, what type of life would you want to design, lifestyle would you want to design for yourself and you know, the people in the office and then kind of work backwards from there. And, you know, you'll have to make some adjustments to adjust to reality. But I think what a lot of people find through that exercise is there's a lot of assumptions that you don't have to assume. And so, for example, uh, for us at Zappos, in the early days of Zappos, when I actually interviewed everyone, Fred interviewed everyone, and our thought was, well, who would we choose to be around if we weren't forced to be in the office together with them every day? And that was an additional criteria that we added to the interview process, which you know, kind of evolved to today, our HR department interviews everyone purely for culture fit in addition to, you know, the standard set of interviews that they do with the hiring manager and his or her team. And they have to pass both in order to be hired, whereas some people would assume, well, sometimes you have to hire people that, you know, because they have the right skill sets and experiences, even if you don't get along personality-wise with them, uh, even if they're bad for the culture, you, you have to hire them. And, you know, for us, we just went in with the assumption that you actually don't. You know, challenging that assumption that you have to hire, you can't add additional criteria. And for us, it's culture. All right, Tony, we know your time is valuable and we're going to end it there, but we really appreciate you being on the show. Again, we both loved your book, Delivering Happiness. We'll be sure to put a link on our, our site and recommend it to everyone. So thank you so, so much for being on. 
Thank you for having me. And one last comment I would make is, um, I I think this was before you were recording, but you you were giving me background of how you guys started with the show. And, you know, if you, and I think you guys basically just, my understanding is started this just because it was something you're passionate about. But if if you had to go in with saying, okay, we're only going to do this if we're from the get go, we're going to get 20,000 listeners a day and (laughs) make a business out of it like you would have never gone down that path, but you went in it just because you were passionate about it, and then now it is what it is today, and and, and it happened through something you couldn't have controlled or predicted. You know, that's such a good point, and one that John and I both kind of thought about after reading your book. You're such a proponent of following your passion and working hard towards what makes you happy, and then seeing your success story gives us and hopefully others the will to to go for it and see what happens without always having to think about the what-ifs and what could go wrong. So we really appreciate it, and again, thank you. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. All right, welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Tony. Uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, Zappos didn't ask us to do this. They didn't pay us anything. But I wanted to recommend that you guys support Zappos anytime you need to buy shoes, accessories, etc. Go to their website. They truly do believe that the customer comes first. They provide, you know, free shipping both ways. They're great, great people. And I can, can't recommend them enough. And now for another fast-breaking news story. Well, everyone, in case you missed it last episode, you might not know what that sound clip was. That signifies we are doing another book giveaway. You have all made it this far, so we will congratulate you. This week, we have copies of Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness, A Path to Profits, Passion, and Purpose. I know we talked up his book a lot at the beginning, and so it's only fair if we offer up a couple of these copies for free, which we're going to do. In order to win these, there's two very simple ways. One... Go on Twitter, write a nice little comment about Smart People Podcast. Make sure to include at Smart People Pod. That's our Twitter thing, and it'll let us know that you want to be entered and that you like listening. Similarly, you can do that on Facebook. In your status updates, just write a little comment about Smart People Podcast and put at Smart People Podcast. That way, it'll let us know on our site that you want to enter. And we will pick a few winners and send them a free copy of Tony Shea's book. And as Chris mentioned, we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Like us, suggest us to your friends for them to like. You can also follow us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If we're giving away free books and free interviews and all this stuff, the least you can do is go to iTunes, subscribe to us every week, take a listen. We promise everything's getting better. Our guests are incredible. And leave us a star rating while you're there and a comment. It helps us out in the rankings and allows more people to be aware of the podcast. Special thank you to the outdoors for the music on the podcast. Next week, we have a fantastic guest that you don't want to miss. So make sure you subscribe. Thanks for joining us on this smart adventure. See you guys later.